Hi, this is Sarah McCaslin with the Forgotten Sheep Podcast. And in this podcast, I've done things a little differently. What you'll be hearing is a live presentation that I did just today as I'm recording this at Atria Willow Park uh, Retirement Community in Texas. And so uh, this is as presented, unedited, everything included in it. You will hear some sound in the background. I apologize for that. If you guys have trouble hearing it, Please let me know, uh, and I will see what I can do to improve the audio. But I hope you enjoy it. Again, it's William J. Seymour, Catalyst for the Pentecostal Movement. Thank you. Okay, so uh, today we're going to talk about William J. Seymour. Now, you notice I have here he was the Catalyst for the Pentecostal Movement. For many years, for about 50 years, he was pretty much forgotten by the Pentecostal church. He was an African-American evangelist, a man of prayer, and he was a man that was truly filled with the Holy Spirit. He was born in extreme poverty to emancipated slaves, and he taught himself to read with the Bible. Uh, he, uh, his contributions to the Pentecostal movement were almost forgotten for about 50 years. And then a gentleman in the Assemblies of God. Oh, good, we've got some more people coming in. Hi, guys. So a gentleman in the Assemblies of God wrote a paper on William J. Seymour and brought attention back to him and to his contributions. So he was the catalyst for the outpouring that led to the Pentecostal movement. And some people have taken issue with the term catalyst and said, well, he should be called the father of it. I think catalyst is the perfect word for what uh, William was. In the, uh, when he arrived in California where the Pentecostal movement was about to break, break forth, I guess you could say, there was a lot of people that were seeking the Lord. There was a lot of people that were wanting to see a move of God. When he arrived there, it's like everything accelerated. And it happened. He was the key figure in that. And in chemistry, a catalyst is something that causes a chemical reaction to speed up. So I think that's the perfect word for what he was. So in his meetings, to put it in his words, color lines were erased by the blood of Jesus at a time when segregation was still uh, enforced across many areas in America. They had... Uh, blacks, whites, Hispanics, and Asians all worshiping together in the same place, kneeling at the same altars together with no, no segregation, no division. And so this is a picture of him and his wife, Jenny, who was church pianist for a long time before he married him. And so let's go ahead and talk a little bit about his background. He was born May 2nd, 1870 in Centerville, Louisiana probably closer to us than any of the missionaries we've talked about before or any of the preachers. His parents were Simon and Phyllis, and they were emancipated plantation slaves. And he was baptized at the Roman Catholic Church of the Assumption. This is the church in nearby Franklin, uh, Franklin, Louisiana. But his mother raised him as a Baptist. And he taught himself to read by using the Bible. And his father died in 1891 from a disease, they don't say what, that he contracted while serving the Union Army, fighting for the Union Army during the Civil War. So this, just his background is so interesting. 
and to have come from to have come from slavery and poverty and to be the catalyst for a movement that spread all over the world is neat. I think it's really neat. Well, when his dad passed away, the responsibility fell on him to try to keep his family alive. He was 21, and this is not the cabin that they lived in that I have pictured here, but it would have been a similar one. He grew substance crops. That means just enough uh, crops for his own family to eat, his mom and his brothers and sisters. And he had some other income sources, but it was barely enough for them to survive. And in the South at that time, the KKK was extremely active. The Jim Crow laws were in effect. Um, and, and as an example of, of uh, what I mean by the Jim Crow laws being in effect, I was listening to uh, a video the other night that was describing it like the vagrancy laws. If you did not have a job, they would put you in jail. Well, a lot of the people at that time that didn't have jobs were recently emancipated slaves. Once they put you in jail, they could lease you out to a plantation to work, but you didn't get the money for it. And so it was a horrible conditions and a very bad time that he was growing up. And as I said, discrimination was not the only problem. There was violence against uh, blacks, especially young men like himself. And I, this picture is not from that time period. This is actually from, I think, the 1940s, uh, where a couple of young men had been lynched. And I want you to look at the crowd there of people that are smiling and laughing at this lynching. It's horrifying, and that's, that's the, the attitudes that he was born in. And so in 1895, when he was 25, he did what very few young men like himself in the South had the nerve to do. He moved north. And he overcame the mental, the way the author described it, it was like a mental bondage that was keeping these young men thinking they had to stay in the South, making them think that they were worthless, making them think there were no opportunities for them anywhere else. At that time, only 10% of the African-American population had ever moved out of the South. But William decided to move, and so he headed to Indianapolis. Well, he had a hard time finding a job there in Indianapolis because of segregation laws. Um, many restaurants were just absolutely closed, and many uh, businesses were absolutely closed to black people, but he found a job as a hotel waiter. And he began to attend the Simpson Chapel Methodist Episcopal Church. And even though his mother had raised him Baptist, he had learned to read, reading the Bible. That was when he wasn't born again until he had moved to Indianapolis. And at that church is where he got saved. And he said it was there he first realized that there were no class or color lines when it came to salvation. And apparently after his conversion, he initially began to feel a call to preach. But he pushed it away because that was not what he was wanting to do. He resisted, uh, but the Lord did not give up on him. Okay, So he moved back to Louisiana for a while. He worked as a field hand. Then he headed north again to Cincinnati, Ohio. And there he started attending a Methodist church. Now, he, he very much liked Wesley's doctrines. He liked what Wesley, John Wesley had to say about prayer. 
and about holiness and divine healing. And also Wesley's view that racial discrimination was inherently wrong. And he was disappointed that the Methodist churches there in Ohio weren't living up to what Wesley, what Wesley had taught and what Wesley had believed. And so he started looking for another church, someplace where he felt like, I guess, where they were living the doctrines they taught. And he encountered a group called the Evening Light Saints. And they believed in the second coming of the Lord. I believe the reason they called themselves the Evening Light Saints is they believed that uh, the Lord was coming quickly and they were in the end times. They were a very strict group. They didn't believe in jewelry. They didn't believe in wearing ties. Uh, different things like that. But one of the things that uh, William liked about them is they managed to find joy in good times and in bad times. And so it was among these people that his call to the ministry started growing stronger. And uh, while he's there in uh, Cincinnati, he got uh, work as a waiter again at a restaurant. And then he contracted smallpox. And it was a really serious outbreak in that area of smallpox. And he was convinced that the smallpox had come about as a result of the Lord uh, trying to get his attention because the Lord had called him to preach. And he counted himself fortunate that he survived it. He was sick for three weeks, and it left him blind in one eye and scarred. And the reason you always see pictures of him with a beard is covering up those, the scarring. But uh, he decided he would say yes to what the Lord was telling him to do, what the Lord was calling him to do. And so the group that he was a part of, the Evening Slight Saints, they ordained him, and he headed out as a self-supporting evangelist. And by self-supporting, he didn't ask for money during his church services. He just believed the Lord would supply the money and the work that he needed. And so he ended up traveling all the way from Cincinnati to Houston, Texas in 1905, and he found some of his family living in Houston, and so he set up a home base for his ministry. And there he encountered a white minister named Charles Parham. And this gets kind of complicated, so hang in here with me. So a friend of his was Miss Lucy Farrow, and she attended Parham's meetings, and she was a preacher. She had her own church. And so she had been invited by Parham to head with his family to Kansas, where he heard that there was a, the Lord was moving. And he asked her to come as their governess. And so what I liked about her is she, she, even though she was a preacher in her own right, a pastor in her own right, she went as their governess. And the Lord touched her, and she was one of the first, one of the first ones to receive the baptism in the Holy Spirit, as the Pentecostals describe it, with speaking in tongues. So she asked William to pastor her church while she went to Kansas. And when she returned, as I said, she had experienced speaking in tongues. And this is something William had never paid any attention to, never had given it much thought. And so he began to pray about it, and he studied it, and he decided that even though he didn't have that experience, that it was in the Bible. And so when the group that he was a part of, the Evening Light Saints, found out that he was accepting tongues, they weren't real happy about it because that's not one of their doctrines. So he left their group. So during this time, the white minister, Charles Parham, opens up a Bible school. 
and uh, Sister Pharaoh insists that William attend. Now this is, uh, this is Texas, and Texas was not a nice place for uh, African Americans at that time. So William could, uh, Parham said William could come, but he had to sit out in the hall. He couldn't sit in the classroom with the white students. And he couldn't stay overnight for prayer meetings like many of the students did. And in spite of all that, Parham, uh, they said he was so smart that William Seymour was able to learn Parham's doctrine so well in just a matter of weeks, he could preach it as well as Parham. <laughs> and he was really gifted. And uh, Parham saw a lot of potential in William, and so he took William out preaching with him. But as much as I hate to say this, um, as we'll see later on, Parham was a racist. And he was very much in support of segregation laws. And so when he would take William out preaching with him, William could only preach to the black people. Now, I don't know about y'all, but if I had been William, I think I would have washed my hands of that whole group and said, well, if that's how you feel about me, I'm going somewhere else. But you know what? He, he persevered through it. He had, later on when um, his, he is attacked for his doctrines, he had so much of the Lord in him, when they would try to goad him and get him to react and get angry, they couldn't make the man angry. They couldn't even make him flustered. He loved, uh, William loved the Lord so much that those things didn't bother him. And so we should be, uh, the Pentecostals, and those of us that have been touched in one way or another by their, their work and their ministry, should be thankful that William was a, a humble and sweet guy. Because if he hadn't been, he wouldn't have come through that without a real bad attitude problem. <laughs> but he came through it without getting an attitude problem. So he finished his classes up, and he didn't agree with all of Parham's teachings. But it helped him set up his own theology and develop his own theology. So then in 1906, he starts making plans to start his own church. When he receives an invitation to pastor a mission church in Los Angeles, California. So he goes from the Bible Belt to California. And California has always been more, I guess the word they would probably use is liberal and more open-minded and wilder <laughs> than the rest of the country. It just always has been. So he gets invited to pastor a missions church in California. And he arrived at a time when revival was beginning to break out there. In California, going, to, my mother got saved in California. And her viewpoint was, in California, you don't go to church because your family does or because it's culturally acceptable or because it helps you have business connections. If you go to church there, it's because you're serious. You're, you, you're seriously trying to find out about the Lord. You're seriously seeking God. And so that California is where there was a whole bunch of people beginning to seek God. And it was also a melting pot. There was just about every race there in California. And so William arrives and finds that racism was not as bad in California as it was in other places because there were so many different nationalities there. Now that's not to say there wasn't racism there, but it wasn't as bad as say in Texas where he couldn't attend class with white ministers. Okay? 
People were earnestly seeking the Lord, and there was evidence of that on all sides. There were prayer meetings being held. There were missions springing up where people were trying to reach out to others. And that's the atmosphere that the Lord sent William. And he's going to serve as a catalyst for the move of God that's about to start. But things don't start off real well. Okay, he arrives at the mission. He preaches his first sermon to a large group of African Americans that have assembled there. And he preached on divine healing. They were okay with that. He preached on the second coming. They were okay with that. And he preached on tongues. And he admitted that he didn't have the experience himself, but he believed in it because it was taught in the Bible. Some agreed with his teachings and some didn't. So he can tell that it's not, the whole audience hasn't really received his message that well. And he goes home with a family by the name of Lee to have lunch. Now, Mr. Lee was janitor at a large bank. He goes home with the Lees to have lunch or dinner. He comes back that night and they've padlocked the doors against him at the mission. Can you imagine? They've invited you here to try out and you show up and that night they've padlocked the doors against you. And he, this guy is so, he's so committed to the Lord, he doesn't let it make him angry. He's not offended by it. In fact, he goes home and he goes back with Elise and starts praying. But the mission leader, her name was Sister Hutchinson, she had been outraged by William's teachings. And here's what it really was. They didn't like it because William was implying there was a Christian experience that they didn't have. And they didn't like it. It was a pride thing. And she not only refused him access to the mission, but she wouldn't even let him use the sleeping room at the mission that they had promised him. So here he was in Los Angeles, California, with very little money and no place to stay. The church that he was supposed to take over was padlocked against him, but the Lord is with him. And he knew that the Lord would take care of him. And so he went back home with the Lee family. And now they were a little uncomfortable. They thought, well, my goodness, if the church has padlocked the doors against him, should we have him in our home? You know, is he some kind of a false teacher? Well, he prayed and fasted for several days in the room that they let him have. And they knew he was praying and fasting. And then one day he comes out and he invites that family to pray with him. And as they prayed with William, all their reservations about him disappeared. And they realized he truly was a man of God. He wasn't a false prophet. He wasn't a false teacher. He was a man of God. And so then word got around about these prayer meetings. And so other people decide they're going to come to these prayer meetings and see what's going on. And then as other people began to come, word got around that William was a man of prayer. And I really liked this picture of him holding his Bible. I really like that picture of him. And I think that's a key thing about him. I think that's what helped him become, have such a sweet spirit about him is he spent so much time in the presence of the Lord that it just kind of, he absorbed it, you know. Um, there was a, a holiness preacher that was born again, not all that far from here in, uh, I believe it was Cedar, not Cedar Hill, Lancaster, Texas, Lancaster, Texas, and he, this particular holiness minister said that it was his goal in life to be so full of the Lord 
that when someone slapped him, their hand would get sticky with the love of Christ. <laughs> well, I think that pretty much is what William Seymour achieved also. He was so full of the Lord when they would try to goad him and make him angry, it never happened. So Sister Hutchison, she was the lady that had invited him to come down there and pastor the mission. She heard about the prayer meetings, and she decided to have William meet with some holiness ministers to quote, unquote, determine the source of his doctrinal error. So he did. He wasn't intimidated by them. He preached what the Bible taught. He stayed strictly with the scripture. And some of those present couldn't deny that this Lord, this spirit of the Lord was with William because no matter how hard they tried, they couldn't rattle him, they couldn't disturb him, they couldn't make him angry. And apparently they were trying to. They would argue and accuse him, and they said he would just sit there politely and smile. At the end, one of the pastors said they were condemned by their own activities. They claimed they were already filled with the Holy Spirit, but here they were behaving in a most unholy manner. And he said they made their own behavior made it evident by their own definition of baptism of the Holy Spirit. They did not have the Holy Spirit. So, uh, I don't think anything was accomplished through this meeting, except they can, became convinced that he really had the Lord, and they came away convicted. And convicted of their pride. That how dare someone suggest there was an experience they didn't have. So, after his examination, another family invited him into their home. And this is the home that he was invited into, and he accepted and he began to hold meetings there. And the meetings primarily consisted of people praying and seeking God. And that's what it was in the beginning. And people were wanting uh, the experience that he described in his sermons that he didn't have yet either. And so he sent, he sent word down to Houston and asked Sister Pharaoh to come. Now she's the lady that entrusted him with her church when she headed out to Kansas. And he asked her to come and help him pray, and she did. And so the group started on a 10-day fast where they were seeking God and praying for the experience described in the book of Acts uh, where the uh, disciples were gathered in the upper room and said that flames of fire appeared over their head. Not that they were looking for flames of fire, but they were looking for that experience, the disciples that had, the group that had gathered in that upper room were empowered by the Holy Spirit to start witnessing to people and winning the lost. And that's what these people wanted. They wanted that empowerment, that ability to reach the lost, to be able to pray for them and speak to them and people to get saved. That's what they were looking for. And during this time, uh, the guy that William had originally stayed with, Mr. Lee, he asked William to come by his house and pray for him. He was sick. I was not able to find out what he was sick with, but he was sick. And so William went and he anointed him with oil and he prayed for him. And instantly, whatever that man's ailment was, it was gone. Instantly. And next, Mr. Lee asked William to pray for him to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit that he had been describing in his sermons. And again, remember, William did not have that experience like it was described. But he laid hands on Mr. Lee again and began to pray for him. And Mr. Lee began to speak in tongues. 
So that night they're having a meeting at the picture of the home I showed you a moment ago. And William told the group about what happened with Mr. Lee, about laying hands on him and the man was healed. And then about Mr. Lee speaking in tongues. And as he finished the testimony, Mr. Lee stood to his feet and began to speak in tongues. And then the whole group got down on their knees and began to pray. And one of the first to speak in tongues was Jenny Moore, the pianist, who is later going to be William's wife. They said she fell off the piano onto the floor and began to speak in tongues. And like I said, she's going to be his wife later on. And several more received the baptism that night. And a lot of them went out of the house and into the neighborhood and started witnessing people and telling them what was going on. And Miss Moore, who had fallen off the piano bench, got back to the piano and began to play the piano and began to sing. And they said that night she sang in six different languages and they were interpreted. And she only knew English. That was the only language she knew. And so the meeting lasted about 10 p.m. Well, when people heard about these strange goings-on, they gathered around and started trying to peek in the windows at the next meeting. They wanted to see someone speak in tongues. They wanted to see if the church pianist was going to fall off the piano bench again. You know, they were curious. Some of them were legitimately wanting to be touched by the Lord. A lot of them were curious, but they left touched by the Lord too. And so people were trying to peek in the windows. They were gathering around the house. And they said sometimes the meetings were loud and joyous and boisterous. And other times they were very quiet. And just about every race and culture there was in Los Angeles began to gather around that little house. So we had all different colors of people there. In fact, they began to gather around it with such intensity that this porch started collapsing one time. Well, William began to use that front porch as a pulpit. They had locked him out of the mission, uh, you know, that he was supposed to pastor. But they may lock William out, but they can't keep the Holy Spirit from moving. And so he began to use that front porch as a pulpit. And the crowds would press up against that front porch and gather in this yard here. And the front porch started collapsing. So they reinforced it, and they kept on with the meetings. And so more and more crowds began to gather in that front yard. And these were people, and a lot of them, again, still curiosity seekers, but they wanted to hear this message that William was sharing. They wanted to hear what he had to say about the Lord. And the spirit that was with William may have been headlocked out of the mission, as I said, but he could not, the Holy Spirit could not be kept away from people's hearts. And so, this is eventually where he's going to end up meeting, uh, holding meetings. But during the first days of this outpouring, William did eventually receive the baptism that he had been preaching. A lot of people would say, well, you should not, a preacher shouldn't preach an experience they haven't had. William did, and the Lord blessed it. Um, he did get that experience. It was late at night in April, four months after he had arrived in California. But he had persevered in seeking the Lord. And guys, he didn't have that experience, but he was able to lay hands on Mr. Lee, and Mr. Lee received that experience. 
So there's a lot of things that we just don't understand and that we can't explain, but the Lord moves how he sees fit, you know. And so the meetings began to outgrow the house, and it was obvious they were going to need to find another meeting place. And so um, one day, William and a couple other men headed out to go find a new meeting place, and they walked and they walked, and they ended up in the industrial section of Los Angeles. It was a street about a half a mile long. It was a dead end, and there was a building there for lease. Um, the bottom part of the building had been converted to a stable, so you can imagine the condition the inside of that building was in. But they, uh, they leased that building. It was on uh, Azusa Street in Los Angeles. And since, the, since, the, since that time, that building's been torn down. And I can tell you it's a good thing because I can promise you the Pentecostals would have made some kind of a holy spot out of it. <laughs> so, <laughs> but it has since been torn down. <laughs> but that is where they moved their meetings, was Azusa Street. And as they began to hold meetings there, it was there was no segregation practiced at all. All the races knelt down side by side and were praying together and seeking the Lord together. One of the stories about Azusa Street that I, have, I myself haven't been able to independently verify, but they say that one time there was such a glow coming from that building that the firemen headed there thinking there was a fire, and it wasn't. That place was so full of the Lord, it was practically, it was glowing. There was light coming out of the windows. That was too intense to be the light that they had available at that time. But that's where, uh, that's where William ends up ministering. And I'm gonna, that's what I was gonna share with you guys today. So he came, from poverty, he came from being the son of emancipated slaves in Louisiana, where they were horribly discriminated against. And the Lord brought him all the way from Louisiana to Los Angeles, California, where he's going to be the catalyst for the Pentecostal movement in America. This is where um, the Pentecostal movement considers its birthplace, is this building right here. And uh, there was a time when the Pentecostals took pride in the fact that it was a old beat-up building that the Lord began to move in. Um, the Pentecostal churches have gotten a lot more mainstream now. But one of the neat things about this, again, it was led by an African-American man. It was completely interracial. There were no... There was no consideration given to race at all. All races met there together. All races could preach. All races could pray. They were there together. They, they couldn't care less about any of that. Another interesting thing is they had been, they were um, prophecies. They would prophesy about things. And um, there was what they called a doomsday prophecy that came out. And then the San Francisco earthquake hit. And a lot of people took a lot more interest at these crazy doomsday prophecy people in this building after a doomsday-style earthquake hit. But that, like I said, this is the birthplace of the Pentecostal movement. And it was supposed to have been a movement for all people, all colors, all cultures, 
It didn't matter whether you were rich or poor or anything like that. That's what its roots were. That's how it, uh, how it was. And I remember when I was a kid growing up, we had an older Pentecostal minister that had gotten, uh, he'd gotten saved when he was a kid. And he talked about when he retired, he would have enough Social Security to buy a loaf of bread every month. <laughs> Because they just the people he worked with were poor and they just didn't have money to do things like that. But uh, but that's the the roots of the the movement. And so next week we're going to talk about some of the neat things that happened here, and then we're going to talk about some of the sad things that happened here. Um, and I'm going to go back up here. I want you guys to to see his wife again. I think I got picked. Here we go. Here we go. So, as I said, he had this, he didn't get, oh, this thing's going to decide to go to sleep on me. He didn't get married till he was in his 30s, and I was, as I was telling um, Eloise earlier, uh, when he married, apparently the church secretary was extremely jealous, and she ran off with his entire mailing list for his paper, they called, I think the, I can't remember what they called it, but she ran off with his mailing list and uh, joined in with another Pentecostal preacher, and they basically stole his mailing list and started publishing from, with a new address for the headquarters without telling the people that it no longer had anything to do with him. So there's some bad things that went on. But this is William and his wife, Jenny, the pianist, the church pianist that fell off the piano bench. But that's his, that's his wife. Well, if we could go ahead and um, close with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you call William Seymour to preach. Lord, we thank you that you helped him persevere through the racism and the segregation that he faced in those years as you were preparing him for the job he was going to be doing in Los Angeles. I thank you, Lord, for the witness we have of his sweet spirit, Lord, and the holiness truly embodying the teachings of Jesus Christ with his attitude and his, his love and his... He could, they couldn't make him angry. They couldn't make him strike out. When people did him wrong, he just kept on going and didn't say anything. And we thank you, Lord, for that wonderful testimony and that wonderful witness. And Lord, I pray that we will be inspired by his commitment to pray. Lord, when they padlocked him, out of the church that they had invited him to come pastor, his first instinct wasn't to start accusing, wasn't to start to give in to despondency or frustration, but Lord, he began to pray, and he began to fast and pray, and Lord, as he sought you, you opened the doors for him that needed to be opened, and we thank you, Lord, and I pray that we will follow his example, Lord, and when things come up in our life to cause us distress, frustration, sadness, fear, Lord, may we remember to take those things, first of all, to you in prayer. And Lord, I pray that you'll bless the ladies that came here today to listen to this talk. I pray they will leave here feeling refreshed. And we thank you, Lord, in your name. Amen.